From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, this is the Eurovision News Podcast. We live in a world where we are constantly exposed to different types of media. News, social media, advertising. They can influence our thoughts, feelings, and actions, and sometimes without us even being aware of it. Media literacy is not only a skill, but a responsibility. By being media literate, we can become more informed, engaged, and empowered citizens in the digital age. Today, I'm joined by Juliana von Repart Bismarck, who is the founder of Lie Detectors, an award-winning news literacy project in Europe. Hi, Juliana. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Lauren. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on. Can we start by having you tell us a little bit about you and what inspired you to focus on media literacy? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a lot of historians in my family. So right from a pretty young age, I was always kind of fascinated by the way narratives form, you know, what gets retained in our collective memory, what narrative takes hold um, and how we reconcile um, conflicting narratives. And um, then I became a journalist, and I was a journalist really very happily um, for more than 20 years. And um, then in late 2016, a few things happened, and they just made me think, you know what, just being a journalist doing wonderful journalism may just not cut it anymore these days. So a few things happened before the Trump elections. I had a discussion on a very public Facebook wall with a one of my favorite family members who told me that he couldn't trust what I was saying because I was a journalist. And um, and then not long later, I was researching a story and I, I was um, in contact with some young people and I had this conversation with a 13-year-old in a really kind of sheltered, well-to-do little town in Germany. And she showed me this post that had been circulating among her school friends via WhatsApp. And it was kind of early QAnon, you know, it was saying really crazy stuff about Hillary Clinton and saying why you should vote for Trump. And even though these kids were only 13 years old and they were living in Germany and had no, you know, no way they were ever going to vote in the United States, nonetheless, this post had totally divided their classroom. And when I asked her, where'd you get this from? She said, oh, it's you know my source. My source is Instagram. And I thought, oh my God, that's not a source. That's a, you know, that's a photo app. You know, how are you ever, you know, that's not where to get news from. And, um, and so <laughs> actually, you know, a really important moment that we had then is that we sat together and unraveled this fake, you know, it was really easy to do. There was really obviously just had to do a little bit of research and the Russian bot behind it became very, very apparent. And I noticed just how positive this was for her, you know, because she was worried about her class and then just a couple of tricks, a little bit of research and everything and bingo, she had her answer. And I thought, well, actually, we need to do more of this. I need to do more of this. So I tried to join an organization that would send me into classrooms and let me speak from a journalist perspective about how journalism works, how sometimes it doesn't work and how, how journalism is different from an Instagram post. And then when I realized there was no such organization, I just founded my own. I found the funding and <laughs> the rest just happened. 
I know that you've worked directly with some of my colleagues and you work with other public service media organizations as well to deliver media literacy to students. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of training the journalists and, and how it works? Yeah, you know, journalists are the lifeblood of what we do because since I founded the organization, we now have more than 400 journalists across Europe trained up to go into classrooms and work with kids, but also work with teachers. You know, we also work with academia and scientific study on the, the impact of what we do. But one thing that we really love doing is we love working with newsrooms. Some of the journalists that we work with do it in their free time and others do it via the newsrooms. And we think this is a really wonderful combo. And one of those newsrooms is the EBU newsroom in Geneva, where Liz Corbyn one day said, let's make it happen. And two months later, your colleagues were off in the classrooms in and around Geneva. And we really love this kind of setup because it's so simple. It works like this. All you need is a willing bureau chief or editor who says, yes, I believe that my journalists should be freed up for half a day every few weeks or every few months to go into classrooms to share their news gathering skills with the community. When an editor or a bureau chief decides that, you can get an awful lot done. So, you know, your your colleagues in EBU have been to, I'm not sure how many classrooms, but I do know that they've visited more than, they've worked with more than 250 individual students and the feedback is just wonderful. Um, and it's kind of win-win, you know, because it's good for the kids, it's good for the teachers. And obviously it's, you know, it's also, you know, it's just a, an opportunity for the journalist to, to work directly with the kids and to explain their work because so few people these days understand how journalism works. So we've done this with several media organizations, also RFD, Tagesschau in Germany and MDR. And now we're just in conversations about it, another partnership in, in Austria. Uh, we've got a couple in, um, in Belgium and it just, it's just part of this wave that we're trying to amplify that newsrooms understand that in an age where everybody's doing their own news gathering, where everybody's putting together their own evening broadcast, you know? It's part of the public service mandate of a journalist, surely by now, not only to do the news gathering, but also to be handing over the skills of news gathering to society. Wonderful. Um, before we move on too much farther, I would love to hear some of the examples of some of the feedback that you've received. Yeah, I was looking at this before I got on the call with you. Um, so uh, the kids say about your EBU um, journalist, we, uh, we always ask them, we work with these very lengthy questionnaires um, They that they help us do internal quality control and blah, blah, blah. They're all handwritten. They're absolutely terrible to to input, but they have to be GDPR compliant. We have math. <laughs> yeah, we have like, we receive like these stacks and stacks of of brown pen paper envelopes that contain the feedback of the kids and then we sit there and we open them and and read what the children say about journalists like like your colleagues and one of the questions we ask them is what surprised you most about the visit of the journalist and some of the things that the kids said about your colleagues were I never knew that journalists traveled so much and that they were so nice. <laughs> and then um, and then they also get to comment. Um, and some of the comments were, oh, actually, I think that I want to become a journalist. We also, I know, I've just been looking at a few of these also from other visits. We know that very often the kids will say things like, I never knew that journalism was so difficult. Mm. I never knew that it was so complicated. And sometimes they say, I was really surprised at how honest 
the journalist was because we do train the journalists to be really frank about their work and also sometimes about how they how they can get things wrong hmm. um, which is really important I think yeah I was going to ask you how you measure the impact of your sessions with the students and you mentioned a little bit about the the feedback forms you get is this how you measure it and please elaborate a little bit more on the effectiveness of the training and the, the sessions with the students, please. Yeah, sure. So we kind of set um, particular goals, how many classrooms we're going to visit. We always plan the year. So for instance, this year, we want to be visiting more than 1,300 classrooms in one year. Um, but the number in itself is not enough. That's not really an impact. We also want to know from the teacher's did they like it? From the kids, did they like it? We also, when we measure, we look very carefully at whether we're getting invited back by the teachers, whether they like us enough to ask us to come back the following year or the following trimester, um, or whether they whether they found us via another teacher's recommendation. Those are all sort of indicators for us that what we're doing is working for the teachers. They like it. They want it. You know, and then there's also lots of anecdotal things where we know what the, what the impact is. So, for instance, I remember very early on, there was a, a school that I used to go to when I was testing this concept, this approach. And I went about four or five times. And the last time I ever walked into that school, I had a bunch of kids raising their hands and knowing all the answers. They knew everything. No, no, miss, that's clickbait. And you have to be, you know, and no, you know, that's no, you have to, but you've only read the headline. That's your problem. You have to read deeper and all of this stuff. You know, that's a, that's TikTok. That's not a reliable news source, you know. And afterwards, the teacher came up to me and said, uh, looking a little bit sheepish, and um, and said, look, I've got to admit, I mean, I've watched you do this a few times and I've just started doing this myself with the kids. And that's the kind of impact that we want. I never have to go into that class, into that school again, because they've actually, first of all, they've got a teacher who's engaged and now no longer frightened of teaching this stuff himself. And second, that particular school actually also just freed up his time to do that. And then we also, you know, we hear from parents sometimes who we you know whatever on on various um social media sites that tell us that the kids now never let them just say something but actually always ask them to prove things with <laughs> with facts <laughs> um but honestly the the study of the impact of media literacy intervention is something that still needs to be explored further and that's where you know beyond what we do um there's neurologists there's cognitive psychologists there's media psychologists all working really hard and beginning to try and get their head around what is critical thinking? How do we embed that in school curricula so that the children are able long-term to resist polarizing content, long-term to stop and think, you know, and actually look beyond the headline, all of these things. And these are all things that are quite difficult to measure. They could vary from platform to platform. And it's something that we're really looking into a lot. We've got um, a scientific study that we're just starting with the University of Munich, LMU in Munich, where we're going to be working with a control group to see how do the children that we work with differ from the ones that we don't work with. And I'm really excited to hear the, the results of that. The measuring of it, we think, is not only fascinating and important to know, but it's going to be an absolutely fundamental way of convincing policymakers 
to put their financial and political capital into increasing the level of media literacy training in schools. You know, once we can say to a policymaker, you need to invest this much, and as a result, this is going to be the impact that you have, that's when we're really going to see some sort of long-term commitments on the public policy side. In terms of the policy side, lie detectors is involved with uh, advocating at the EU level. Can you tell us a little bit about your work there? Yeah, sure. We've been part of several expert advisory processes, notably the 2018 high-level expert group on fake news and disinformation, which kind of started and engendered the ideas around the Digital Services Act's code of practice. We've also been part of the Digital Literacy Expert Group, which came up with some recommendations. And we really see that the on the EU level, if you think about the EU as a democratic project and democracy being under some pressure, it's not surprising that the EU is taking disinformation, online media, polarization, that sort of thing quite seriously. And so they are, there's quite a lot going on there to bring also the platforms to account. And and what really needs to happen now is that there has to be a trickle down of what the EU is doing in terms of these regulatory initiatives and what happens at country level, particularly on the side of education, on the side of digital rights. So at Lie Detectors, we consider that our our work has got to be to take on the, the corrosive effects of polarization and disinformation on society from two different angles. Number one, the demand side. That means why do citizens consume this disinformation? You know, why do they click on this stuff? What can we do about it? What are the tools that we can hand over to citizens, young people, but also teachers, to really, you know, to, to really stifle that demand a little bit, just to curb that. But on the other hand, we really have to we there does need to be a regulatory approach to the way the drivers of disinformation are held to account. And by drivers of disinformation, obviously you can think about foreign hostile actors like Russian bots or Chinese, whatever. We're also so very interested and and we're part of a growing group of organizations that are looking also at the um, the part that the large online platforms may be playing in this particularly with regards to the the recommendation systems and the algorithms and the advertising revenue business model but there's a lot of work yet to be done on that and a lot of organizations in Brussels that are more versed in doing that than we are you, you were talking earlier about some of the feedback that you received from the students and parents and media these days, this even the term itself is so politically charged. I'm wondering if you've had to have any discussions with parents along the way, uh, helping them to understand that you're not influencing the children to fall one way or the other on the political spectrum. Yeah, it's not just teachers. Uh, sorry, it's not just parents, but it's also sometimes the teachers. You know, you've got to think some of these teachers, you walk into classrooms and I don't know when you were last in a classroom, but when I first started testing this, I hadn't been in a classroom in, I don't know, as many years as had passed since I'd left school, right? And you walk into these really intense environments. It's noisy. There's people running around. Sometimes the teachers are wearing earplugs, you know, because it's just like the levels are so high. Sometimes teachers literally invite us into their classroom not because they necessarily love journalists, but just to have 90 minutes 
quiet to themselves. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. You know, and you know, sometimes we walk in and then, you know, you see a teacher, the teacher comes up to you and says, Thank God you're here. Just ignore me. I'm sitting at the back of the room and um I I'm gonna be marking some papers, right? Finally a little bit of time to have a cup of tea. And some of these teachers aren't that in love with journalism or journalists, you know, they can be quite critical. They can be asking you questions like you're just the mouthpiece of your government. Why should we believe you? You know, isn't you know is that actually true? What you're what you're writing and things like that. So these are really important conversations to have. But another thing that we have to do, so we have to really work on trust. And one of the things we will always say to them is that we're not there to tell the kids what to think, but to really give the kids some tools for critical thinking, and to give them the idea that it's worth having a look and digging a little deeper. Um, the other thing that we do, trust is really important because teachers are, you know, they're these gatekeepers. They can open the door to you or they can close the door to you. And one of the things we do, we have like ethical guidelines um, that show the teachers that we're not going to be using any, you know, political content. We're going to be inclusive. We're not going to be marginalizing anybody in the classroom. And then one of the other things that we tell them, we do not take any money from any corporate sources or party political sources and particularly no money from the large online platforms like Facebook and Google. And when we ask them, and this is part of our questionnaires, whether, you know, how important this is to them, there's a very large majority of 70% that say the fact that we are, that we guarantee our independence is an important or very important factor in their decision of inviting us into their classroom. You just mentioned in regards to your funding that you're independent from large online platforms. I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit about your relationship and view of these online platforms. Yeah, so we are really lucky with our funding. Our funding comes from the US foundation called the WIS Foundation, and they are at heart a climate conservation foundation. Their business is to create massive wildernesses and preserve them long term. And they made the connection really early on between the erosion of trust in facts and the erosion of trust in science and the threats to effective climate change policy. And so we've been really lucky, but we're an outlier. You know, there are an awful lot of organizations that have great ideas. There's wonderful media literacy games and news literacy quizzes and all sorts of really great stuff out there. But the funding is just not there. You know, we're just still, public policy is still catching up on this. The large online platforms have been very quick to fund this space, but we really are very determined to, to stay independent because, you know, we do see that the, the business model of the large online platforms have contributed to this polarizing of our societies. In regards to the algorithms, how do you speak to the children and, and inform them about the nature of the algorithms? Well, we work with journalists. And so most of what we do is actually pretty close to news literacy rather than algorithm literacy. Algorithm literacy is one of the new areas that I think are going to see an awful lot of development. Um, we talk a lot about the content that reaches the children on the different platforms. You know, they're on Twitch and Discord, TikTok, Fortnite. This is where they're sourcing their information that's shaping their worldviews. And we talk a lot about that content. There is a new strain of thought, which we are going to be integrating into the work that we do, which is about algorithm literacy. And that is also backed up by cognitive psychological research that shows that if you know what your preferences are, 
if you know that you prefer, I don't know, pizza to hot dogs, let's say, and that the platforms might know this about you, you will understand perhaps why you keep getting more and more content about pizza rather than hot dogs. This is a bad example, but just bear with me. <laughs> I love pizza, so this and, is a great example for me. Excellent. Good. Excellent. So do I. Um, so um, um, the idea that the, the idea, and there's research to back this, that if you understand that you have these preferences and that your preferences are known, and that the content that you're receiving is tailored to those known preferences, then you are actually better able to withstand the polarizing effect of being in that silo, of being in that that preference-driven information silo. And so the understanding of how the algorithms work and how we work within those, within our own preference settings, is actually something that we're going to have to do a lot more education about. I'm wondering if you could walk us through one of the exercises some of our journalists uh, use to teach the students uh, about media literacy. Uh, They're really quite simple. So first of all, uh, one of the things to know about going into classrooms is that it's actually quite terrifying when you walk into a classroom. I can imagine. (laughs) Normally... And then, you know, I remember my first classroom visit, I was absolutely terrified. Um, and I know that all our new journalists are, but we give them, we give them games. And I'm actually proud to say that I've designed these games. And a lot of them have actually withstood the test of time. And six years later, we still have these, all of these classroom visits where we get the kids to take different perspectives from their classroom. So we ask them to view the world outside the classroom, either by looking out of the window or by going out into the corridor of their classroom. And then we ask them to describe what they've seen. And both of the descriptions that they come back with are true and correct. And then both of the descriptions show what the world outside the classroom looks like. But the two views are completely different. And this is one of the ways in which we get them to think about with really simple tools. This is something that 10-year-olds can work with, right? This is really that you can then have quite a really engaging conversation about perspective. Does it matter where the journalist has just looked? Does it matter how much time the journalist has been given to look at the different angles of the story? You know, and how does that, how does the perspective color the ultimate portrayal of reality? And because what we actually are in there to do, and, you know, know, very practically, we work with working journalists, so they can't be in the classroom all day. So what they do is they walk in for 90 minutes and they divide up their time between two parts of our training. The first part is really about disinformation. What is it? What do you call it? Why is it there? Why should we care? What impact does it have? And what are the what are the tools that we can use to decipher and to unravel disinformation? That's number one. But the second part of what we do is really to explain to them how journalism works and the journalistic standards and how we try to go about our work, but also to really show the complexity of you know and how easy it is to show a one-sided view even with the best of intentions and what we're trying to do with that is to really get the kids to understand that there's a difference between deliberate disinformation and manipulation and journalism which as we all know you know as a journalist you don't always get it right right but it is created with the good faith intention of informing the public and i can tell you that we train all the journalists to tell a story of a time when they tried hard and couldn't 
match the complexity of the story. And I can't tell you how silent the classroom goes when you're talking about that. These children are not used to hearing an adult stand in front of the class and say how they got it wrong. It's enormously impactful, and it actually really contributes to the credibility of the individual journalist. Hmm. And this is why, you know, when they fill out their forms, we so often get this answer, what surprised you? And they'd say, wow, that this journalist was so honest, and just how difficult it is to do good journalism. I can imagine it being quite an impactful exercise for the journalists themselves as well. That's what they say. They, um, we get a lot of journalists who say to us that it's made them kind of reassess their journalism and really think deeply about the work that they do day to day. And then, you know, good for the kids, bad for us. Some of the journalists go off and become teachers. <laughs> that's happened a few times now. Um, but yes, they do, they do say, and that's what we're also trying to do. You know, what we're trying to do is create a virtuous circle where the, te- the journalist walks into the classroom and creates a real moment, a real moment of connection with the kids that might not be long, but really has a a ripple effect and keeps the conversation going in the classroom. And that that then goes on to, you know, enables us to teach, to train the teachers so that they can do it by themselves. We work with academia, we work with policymakers, but what we also want is for the journalists to be able to go back into the newsroom and say, this is how we are perceived out there. This is where the kids are getting their information. This is how we need to talk to them and therefore really, um, you know, create impactful journalism on the other side of this. So this is clearly very impactful for the journalists and the children. Um, In general, do you find that it's almost too late for adults, media literacy training that is? And are we as adults just too entrenched in our own ideas? Um, No. I mean, I agree with you that uh, adults absolutely do need it, of course. It's harder to reach them. They're not, they don't all walk into a classroom every day, <laughs> so we can't target them as easily. And, you know, it might be harder to spark their curiosity than it is with 10 to 15-year-olds, which is the youth age bracket that we work with. But it is possible. And what we've really interestingly found, like when we started working directly with teachers, we thought we had to revamp all of our materials so that we were actually tailoring them to an adult audience. Actually, the exercises that we do with 10-year-olds are often, they require a couple of tweaks, a little bit of change in the vocabulary, but it's just as relevant and impactful to work with adults on. When the pandemic started, we thought that we might no longer be able to go into classrooms. Teachers were so overwhelmed. Everybody was at home. We didn't know what was going to happen. And there was a moment when we were thinking, we had long discussions internally, what are we going to do? And the journalists were all, you know, asking us, when are we going to go into the next classroom? What can we do, especially with all of these conspiracy theories about the pandemic swirling around? And one of the things that we thought was, well, if we can't go into classrooms anymore, why don't we go into senior residences where older people, you know, particularly during the pandemic, were really frightened and very isolated. It turned out that actually the pandemic created a massive bump in demand for what we did. And, you know, we redesigned what we did and we went into classrooms online and the demand has never stopped since then. We've got enormous wait lists since then. But I do think that there's an awful lot of work that you can do with with older people. We just don't have the capacity <laughs> trying to master the demand as it is. 
if you if there are journalists out there and people in general who are interested in getting involved in media literacy, uh, what do you tell them? Join Lie Detectors. Get in touch. Um, seriously, uh, if we're not active in their region, then they can be in touch with us to find out what other organizations are active in different countries. When you know we're active in in five languages now, um, but we're not internationally active. You know that's just too much for us. Um, there are lots of organizations we can point them to them and what they really need to do they just get involved find find your own organization and be ready to be absolutely petrified the first time you walk into a classroom it gets easier um and uh some of our best journalists have actually been with us for many years now and keep going back and keep getting something out of it so i really recommend making that connection and um, and contact you know do contact us if there's a newsroom out there um, that would like to get involved in, a, in the kind of cooperation that we have with the EBU, which is working so well, then we'd be really happy to discuss that. What does the future hold for media literacy? That's a big question. There are going to be new areas that will be explored. So first of all, the algorithm literacy that we um, were discussing previously. Um, there's also the, the health angle that we can really see is beginning to look increasingly at media literacy. So the World Health Organization back in 2016 designated online gambling addictions as a medical condition. And since then, it's not really difficult to extend that, you know, to bring that to the logical conclusion that there will be more focus on the health impact of screen use. And we think that, you know, public health and the World Health Organization, for instance, can do an awful lot there. And from our point of view, from the educational point of view, we really think that the ultimate will be that media literacy and the critical thinking skills it delivers and the security and guarantees it provides for our democracy must be recognized as a core fundamental literacy alongside reading and writing and counting. And that as such, it should be recognized as a fundamental educational right. And once that happens, once public authorities are actually making this part of all curricula so that all teachers, regardless of what they're teaching, whether they're teaching maths or English or primary school level, that they can all teach their kids how to stop and think and evaluate a source, then we can really get somewhere. Yulian, thanks so much for your very important work and taking the time to spend with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Lauren. It was a real pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and telling a friend about us. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. The music was created by Mickey Curling, and Martin Lonesser took care of the sound. Thank you from all of us.